Since 1984, Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world and editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through themes, cast and crew members, or other various elements. Welcome to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. We craft double features that are connected in some way to one another, be that thematically, through the artists, the decade, the artistic movement, and more. The only caveat is that every film we watch and discuss must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection each month, as we did last week, I think. We tell you about some great hidden gems coming to the Criterion channel, as we're going to do this week, and much more. I, as always, am Mackenzie, and this is my co-host, Ian. Hello. Hello. Uh, and this week, we are discussing a film that, as we said last week, is was probably one of the most hotly anticipated Criterion editions in a very long time. And that is Spine 1185, Martin Scorsese's 1985 Kafka-esque masterpiece, After Hours. Fresh off the presses. This thing is still piping hot. I like that it's spine number 1,185 and the film is from 1985. I was just looking at those numbers next to each other in my notes and it's very pleasing to the eye. No, that's really nice. I didn't even notice that. Got two 85s (laughs) there. Well, it's a very exciting thing that we are finally doing. I don't know if this is like something that people are necessarily looking forward to, but I do feel as if like since we started this podcast and then after I was got announced into the collection, I was like, oh, that's going to be a really fun episode to do. And I did not mm-hmm. at all expect that it would come this quickly. Good thing hey, we, pivoted. we pivoted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we pivoted. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. So in connection to Jonathan Demi's Something Wild, I am really looking forward to discussing this specifically with you, Mackenzie. But before we get to that, I got to know. I got to know about a couple of things, but uh, please tell me and the audience what you've been watching. Maybe a little bit about our favorite boy. I saw you catch some West films, but please just, you know, give me a give me a small sampling of what you've been watching over the past week. Yeah, I was curious what you meant when you were like, I got to ask about a couple things. I was like, which which things Um, Mm. you have not watched the new Netflix specials that Wes Anderson's doing, correct, Ian? Sadly not. Hopefully after you and I record tonight, I'll pop (gasps) on Henry Sugar. Uh, But. In this household, we all love Wes Anderson, including my mother-in-law who lives downstairs in the suite in the basement, and she texted Frankie and I when that dropped, like, oh, did you all see new Wes Anderson? (laughs) And so I think we're waiting to watch it together. Nice. Well, I just I wanted to make sure I'm not going to spoil anything, obviously. Um, I talk about it a bit on ADP today as well. But yeah, I mean, I loved it, right? We love Wes Anderson. We talked about him for three weeks in a row. I talked about him 
on ADP with Asteroid City. I think uh, my feelings about Wes Anderson are out in the world on the internet. So they're very easy to find. Um, and I've been really <laughs> looking forward to this. Ian and I were in, have been in our DMs on and off for the last couple of months trying to parse what this project <laughs> was. Like we were like, oh, okay, Henry Sugar was a full-length feature film, but then it got cut into a short. But now wait, it's four shorts? Wait, so Henry Sugar's the first of four? Like it's been the, the journey to this has been confusing. Um, but now we officially know that it is four separate short films the first one being henry sugar which is the longest at 39 minutes and i believe the remainder of them are about 17 to 20 minutes and uh they're dropping each day of the week we're recording on a thursday only two of them are out the swan and henry sugar and i've watched them both uh and yeah i loved them i mean they're great i i think he is we saw with asteroid city he is just so fully in his pocket like he is so fine-tuned with the way his films look and feel and sound that like it's it's I'm at a point where I'm like it's like he, he just is flexing on us and it's like he's not even trying he makes it look so effortless now uh which is interesting um and so I think it's really beautiful and I it, it's leaning into the theatrical aspect I think which I loved in Asteroid City you see the people raiding to pull the piece of set away. You see the doors open inside of a, fe- a field of wheat. It's actually a door. You see like the, it says prop department on the side of things. Like I love that it's leaning fully into the theatrical nature of it. And um, this isn't like a spoiler, but this is just for, for you and the audience, Ian. Um, both of them so far are direct address like monologues, pretty much. Um, pretty much reading the book to you almost uh, or the, the story to you. I've heard this. Yeah. Um, and again, if you hated, if you hate that kind of stuff and you're like, ugh, Wes Anderson, like you're going to hate these as Kev so aptly put in his review. But if I was you're just someone about who... to say, I love Kev's uh, review of Henry Sugar, uh, which is basically just like uh, fair warning to those who hated Asteroid City. You're going to hate this. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, you know, you have to lean into the theatricality and the facade and the fact that it is like people monologuing the stories at you. Uh, But I love it because it feels like the characters in the book are speaking to you and telling you their own story. And uh, it's really creative. You know, I know World Daw has a lot of um, obviously problematic aspects to him as a human being, Mm -hmm. um, which you can Google if you do not know. Uh, But I do think his writing style, what I will say about his writing style, I think it serves the way Wes writes if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like he Mm -hmm. uses a lot of um, blunt to the point language that when delivered in Wes's style, it just, it feels like a Wes Anderson script, even though it very clearly is the text of the books. So yeah, it's really cool. I think it works a lot. I'm super excited to see the next couple ones. Um, Last thing as we're big Dev Patel fans in this house, what a beautiful, talented man. And I need Dev in a full length Wes film. He fits the vibe so perfectly he nails the tone um i really hope we get to see dev one we need to see dev in like at least five more movies a year but two uh i hope he's in a wes anderson movie soon yeah the most exciting thing about this project to me is that cast it's a phenomenal group of collaborators i love that he's found like a like i don't know um What's a good comparison? Uh, let's you know, let's use our let's use the subject of our episode today. I love that he's found his Robert De Niro um, in like Rupert Friend, at least for the time <laughs> being. He keeps yes. on coming back to Rupert Friend, and I think they're so well suited for each other. Even though Friend is only popping up in minor roles, it seems like he might have a more prominent uh, part in these shorts. I love the fact that he's working with Cumberbatch. That seems like a no brainer, mm-hmm. as well yeah, as with Patel. Great. 
and Ayodele and Kingsley. But most of all, I am so excited to see uh, Ray Fiennes back in the pot uh, yeah. with, with Wes. And I know he's playing Doll. Um, yes, he is. And that's that's so fun. That's so exciting. Um, yeah. As as a Jewish person, I have my issues with Roald Dahl, but I know there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of stir on the festival circuit asking Westlake, "Do you think they should edit those books?" And he's been giving some really eloquent, smart answers, if maybe a little combative. Uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those interviews. They're called no, they're quite humorous, uh, but he's not mean. He just is obviously irritated by the question. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's understandably. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he would expect to face some questions like that if you're adapting Doll. And he's done it before, right? Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. which will be a future episode, is Roald Doll. A lot of films people love, Matilda, um, you know, are based off of his works. It's definitely a sticky thing to have to navigate, I yeah. think, when adapting yeah. his films or his books. Which uh, is par for the course when it comes to uh, spectating and just loving art in general. Mm. Um but we don't need to get into all of that, Mackenzie. <laughs> Is there anything else that you watched that you wanted to highlight or tell me about? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I we can officially say, I believe, as of this episode coming out, and if not, you can cut I'm it. Sure as we if can. It's on ADP. Uh, yeah. Uh Cassandro. <laughs> we both watched Cassandro with yes. uh the real Latinos boys. And so if you want to hear all of our piping hot takes about that film you can go over to the real latinos um feed (laughs) and check that out i'm gonna say no spoilers about how i feel but i think it will it was shocking i think it was shocking i I told kev this and it blew his mind between five people there were four ratings that's how split we were like in terms of numbers uh on a on a you know 0.5 to 5 star scale there were four different ratings throughout the episode so my friend Guti and I in agreement per usual on most things, I think. <laughs> maybe maybe we have different opinions on Hitchcock, but I feel like Guti and I are aligned on most things. Well, I love it. So other than Cassandra, what else did you, what did you watch, Ian? Well, yeah, I, I watched Cassandra too. But um, aside from that, I had a pretty interesting week. I got... I said on the episode that we recorded last, Something Wild, directed by Jonathan Demme, that I think I might have found a new favorite filmmaker. And by golly, I think that might be true. Um, <gasps> first first, first thing I want to mention briefly, not go into too much detail about it, because I feel similarly to you, is I watched Jonathan Demme's masterpiece, his film he's most remembered for, the one that won him the Oscar. Yes, I visited and ate with an old friend. <laughs> Uh, I watched The Silence of the Lambs uh, with Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, and I liked it just fine. I agree with you a lot on the way that it portrays transness and queerness and the harm that it did to the queer community at the time. If it had not been for my previous knowledge that Demi being such an empathetic human being and actually feeling somewhat remorseful and regretful about the harm that it did to the community... I would have looked at it much more unfavorably. I'm still not a fan of it, but uh, yeah, I, I just have com- conflicting and mixed opinions about that character, but I really loved Jodie Foster. I somewhat disagree with you when you wrote mm. in your review about how 
that's not like you didn't you 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 write in your review not to out you or anything no nope, that please. you know i reread that people, also and i was like oh i wrote that a while ago <laughs> <laughs> well you wrote that a lot of people you know will comment on clarice and it uh being a feminist character and being really inspired and motivated or um seen by that performance and i think you were a little bit hesitant to agree with that kind of mm -hmm. broader consensus i might agree more so with that broader consensus i see clarice is really powerful and just a character with a lot of intuition and a lot of chutzpah um i think it might be a little bit of a product for its time of its time but even then i think it's a really fascinating performance and jodie foster is amazing i always love her in a film even when that film is shit subtweeting hotel artemis um i i think when i wrote that i meant it less about the character clarice because i do think the character is amazing it was about the way she was treated within the world and ways that constantly highlighted that she was a woman and i understand that mm -hmm. that's part of it because gender is such a huge part of that movie mm -hmm. um but like sometimes when i think and i'm not i don't think this has to be this way across the board but mm -hmm. like i think about like I don't know. Oh, top of my head, Corky from Bound. A lot of people uh -huh. think of that as a cool character because she was written as a man. And sometimes when I view feminist characters, I see a situation and I'm like, would that have happened if this character was a man? And if so, maybe it's a bit too heavy handed on its feminist themes for me. Like I think of her getting cum thrown in her face. I'm like, would that have happened yeah. if this character was a man? Mm. Like I just, there were parts of it that made me uncomfortable as a woman watching it that didn't make me feel necessarily empowered. I was more like, anxious about the character because i think i do agree jodie foster deserved the oscar a brilliant performance mm -hmm. and a great character i just i think it was the way the movie framed her that sometimes bothered me yeah no i that makes total sense and i totally agree with you uh in that regard yeah i think when you are trying to when you have the intent to tell a feminist story and you are coming from the position of a man it's a book written by a man script written by a man mm -hmm. and it's directed by a man you're going to uh fail in numerous ways it's just uh not possible so no yeah i yeah i i absolutely see where you're coming from and you know not being a woman i can't uh say that like i've ever been in that position so defer oh, i didn't you. mean to pull and that was, i'm a woman no 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 no, no, no. no like i <laughs> no. actually like genuinely would defer to you and i see exactly what you're saying and, but yeah anyway it's a it's a fascinating movie it scared me uh shitless i will never watch it again i don't <laughs> understand how and this is the thing that gets said often, Mackenzie, by people on Letterboxd. I don't understand how people say that's a comfort movie. Fuck them. I I don't either. Uh, but also, it's in the Criterion Collection. Yes. So I I, I watched it. it. It's fine. Honestly, I guess that I, I could have just said that. I gave it three stars. I think it's fine. I see what people are all jazzed up about, but it's not really for me. The thing that I loved the most about it was Jodie Foster, but also Demi's like direction I, I i saw a lot of interesting things from him especially the signature demi down the barrel of the lens uh mm -hmm. you know shot which i loved um but aside from that i think i also watched the best movie that was ever conceived and made um <gasps> in the history of humanity um oh. i went <gasps> to the closest imax screen and checked out a film by jonathan demi and talking heads i saw stop making sense for the very first time and i'm fucking obsessed with it I literally think it might be my favorite movie of all time. It's sitting. It's the quickest I've oh. ever put a movie in my favorites list Holy on Letterboxd. After one viewing, I literally already have tickets to go see it Saturday night. I'm going to try and go see it Sunday. Hopefully, like I'm I'm looking so up tickets now. It. <laughs> it's it's just phenomenal. 
I mean, I've seen many concert movies in my life. I owned basically every concert movie that Lady Gaga ever put out. Oh, yeah, um, that's the same. I, yeah, I mean, the fame, the fame monster ball. The fame on. monster ball um, is so good. Sorry. Yeah. So good. I have, I have to tell you offline a memory of that movie <laughs> that I have of me being in a car, like barfing while that movie plays in the oh, car. That's no. <laughs> great. Um, but yeah, I've, I've owned, I've owned many a concert film and I've always been like, this is neat but it's not really like measuring up to the experience seeing meek little david byrne come out on screen and have a tape for for us is a you know just a uh and then watching the band come on and watching the backup singers edna and linda and then steve scales on i mean this thing's amazing tina weymouth my queen tina yes um tina weymouth is i love her I love them. Imagine not knowing really much much of anything about the talking heads. You're in your mid to late 20s and you just go and see Stop Making Sense for the first time in IMAX. It truly was a transcendent experience. Wait, so you're not a Talking Heads fan? I am now. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, God, yeah, I love them. Um, wow. That's great. I thought you were like going because you loved the band. No, I went because I was like, I'm getting into Jonathan Demi and uh, he's all over this thing, which is incredible. It's like, wild to say because it's you know choreographed by david byrne it's conceived of by the talking heads by talking heads sorry about the uh the um no but yeah i mean i think i have listened to the soundtrack to the film uh front to back 15 16 times um since seeing it i am just obsessed with it i mean beyond its pure just enjoyment factor it's just full of you know, unfiltered creativity. And I got so emotional during many points of it. I like just broke down in tears uh, when David Byrne started singing once in a lifetime. (laughs) Um, No matter how corny or cheesy that is, like, it's just, he, I think has such a way with his lyrics. I'm somebody who really appreciates lyricism and the lyrics and songs. I know some people are just like music's a vibe and I vibe or like, I really enjoy music. I'm all about lyrics. And I know that the talking heads, sorry, I know that talking heads have been somewhat have been often. I know the talking heads have been stated as often being very cerebral or opaque and their meanings are always kind of just all over the place. I, felt like it was very clear what he was talking about um and i identified with it the discontentment with the way that things are and just how hard it is to be a person in the modern world uh anyway i am going on a huge tangent now because i genuinely loved it so much i can't remember the last time i loved a movie this much right out the gate but yeah i saw that mackenzie god i mean i'm a huge talking heads fan i really need to get tickets to go see this while it's in theaters um because yeah i mean i love you gotta listen to tom tom club too that's tina weymouth's other I, band i loved the one song that they get to perform and stop making sense it it's, was it's great probably genius of love or something it is genius uh, of love yeah. i know that's been sampled on a bunch beep, 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 of things beep, 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 beep. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, gosh. no, go go because while well, go see it on the biggest screen with the best speakers you can. I know you had a hard time with the jump scares with Mr. Perot, <laughs> but I'll do I it. I swear to God, this thing sounds phenomenal. Biggest screen, best speakers, IMAX, Dolby, do it. Oh. As soon as we get off, the, get off this call, I'm asking Rachel when we can go <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Um, so yeah, no, that's 
I haven't been watching much aside from Cassandra and those two demis. Um, I, I can't think of anything else. I'm sure there was something else, but that's it for me. Well, then I think before we talk about After Hours, I know you all are anticipatory right now, but we got to talk about the October Criterion Channel slate. We got a lot of fun stuff. Ian, what is catching your eye coming to the Criterion Channel in October? There is so much good stuff coming, Mackenzie. I've got a couple of things I want to mention, but before I do that, I know kind of what I'm going to talk about, I kind of have an inkling of what you're going to be interested in, but I do want to recommend to our listening audience that if they are interested in some of the things that we probably won't mention, like the starring Linda Darnell uh, program, um, or maybe a couple of other things, I'm not sure exactly what he will be talking about, but a dear friend of the show, Guti, has finally started a newsletter. You can find him on yes. Substack and on Instagram. It's at Finite Cinema Dreams. Am I saying that right Mackenzie I believe you are yes yeah so I just I wanted to give Guti a quick plug because he is such a dear friend of the show we were lucky enough to be on Real Latinos with him and his two co-hosts to talk about Cassandro but I know that he's very excited about this Linda Darnell program I saw him post about it earlier today but from me I am beyond stoked to finally catch a film I've been trying to track down for two years in some form it's almost impossible to stream and Criterion is going to put up John Carpenter's like last masterpiece in the mouth of madness in a program entitled 90s Horror. This is going to have things like in the mouth of madness, uh, When a Stranger Calls Back, which I believe they had on the first When a Stranger Calls last October. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But in addition to that, the um, famous or infamous, however you view it, Exorcist 3 starring George C. Scott in a uh, completely gonzo performance. Uh, I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. It's supposed to be insane. I'm very looking forward to checking that out as well. And then the last thing from that program that I'm really interested uh, in everybody checking out, because whereas most people during the Halloween season will watch the, you know, the namesake Halloween with our dear friend Michael Myers, (laughs) <laughs> I always watch uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's my favorite mm. horror film. I love that movie so much. I am a massive defender of the Keanu Reeves performance. I think it's good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that is going to be in the 90s horror collection. I I, I fervently uh, encourage everybody to go and check it out. It's so good. Um, but yeah, aside from that collection... I am definitely interested in just a couple of other things. The only other thing that I will mention is I finally want to check out this um, um, this Guatemalan horror film that was added to the collection last year and also covered by our friends over at Real Latinos last year, La Llorona, um, by a filmmaker mm. called uh, Yero Bustamante. I hope I'm saying that even remotely close to how it's pronounced. Um, but it covers a topic that I'm very keenly interested in, which is um, the period in Latin America where a lot of the countries were under military juntas or military dictatorships and were going through periods of political turmoil and revolution. It basically takes that political context in Guatemala and turns it into a horror film involving the dictator. And it's kind of similar to a very recent film 
again, Ooh, also covered by yeah. real Latinos called El Conde, which basically takes a very similar premise and puts it in Chile with um, Pinochet. So that is what I am most excited for, Mackenzie. Now, please tell me and the audience, what about you? I know there's a couple things on this list that caught your eye. Yeah, God, how am I going to follow that up? That was amazing. Um, yeah, I, you know, there's there's some random little movies. Like, I, I got to check out Dracula, you know. A uh, lot of stuff in the art house horror, uh, which you, Ian, offline, we talked about how they just kind of repackage it every year. They always have these movies. This is more of a curation than a new film. But a lot of things I've been meaning to get around to, like, like well we watched cure which is in there but chronos which wow 15 real latinos uh mentions they also did an episode <laughs> on that but also you know sisters blood for dracula like things i would like to watch so gotta check that out but the thing i really love is the pre-code horror which i feel like they've done before they've at least done a riff on it this seems like another kind of return of some old films that have all the classics like Jacqueline, Mr. Hyde, Dr. X, uh, Island of Lost Souls, which I really, really want to watch. I th- is the 32 version the one that's in the collection, I think? Yeah, that is it. That is it. Wow. Well, hey, we could do it on the show one day. Um, but yeah, lots of great stuff in that. But the thing, the, there's two things I'm super, super pumped to see. One of which is going to be a, re- a beloved rewatch and uh, a hard recommendation to everyone uh, to check out Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which is coming into the Hollywood hits section. Um, I <laughs> love this movie so which LOL, I would not call it a Hollywood hit like, at because all, he- but like. Yeah. I apologize to interrupt you, but they also did this with another favorite of yours and I's uh, Showgirls, which was famously not famously a not a Hollywood hit. Yeah, what is yeah. going on? Curation <laughs> at Criterion. Um, but Brian uh, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. It was a movie I was obsessed with in high school because I was obsessed with the Rocky Horror Picture Show sequel, Shock Treatment. It was my favorite movie. Uh, it's oh, yes. bright. Oh, <laughs> they, yes. they call it an equal, not a sequel, because it's completely disconnected. It's very misunderstood. I like it better than Rocky. Sue me. Um, mm. Jessica Harper plays Janet in that film because they completely recast Brad and Janet. Jessica Harper plays Phoenix in Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> uh, so I was literally just like, I went to this local movie store and I said, I need, it was like back when I just had to Google where to find this movie. And I was like, I need you to order me this DVD, please. And that is the DVD I still have to this day. Uh, so all that rambling to say is I have not watched it in so long. And like, I have it in a shitty format, so I'm very excited to be able to watch it again. And I recommend everyone seek it out. It is absolutely crazy. It is absolutely amazing. The songs are written by the guy who wrote The Rainbow Connection. It yes. You think it's Phantom <laughs> of the Opera, and then it turns into Faust. It's amazing. Uh, and so, yeah, everyone check it out and email us about how much you love it and say, thank you, Mackenzie. This was the best movie in the whole world. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You got to watch, everybody has to watch Dracula and Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, or you're not allowed to listen to the podcast anymore. Exactly. Yeah. You're banned. That's the rules. So, (laughs) Uh, and uh, just to lightly touch, I'm really excited to check out Arsenic and Old Lace, which is in the collection, a semi-recent edition. Uh, Stars my boy, Cary Grant. I do love that that gorgeous goofball. Uh, So I'm going to be checking that out as soon as I can. Yeah. No, I am also very excited for that one. I... Arsenic and Old Lace is the play that every high school on earth does all the time. Oh, is it? It's a play? It's a play. And it's so funny because half of the cast is ancient women. But every play in high, (laughs) like every high school on earth does Arsenic and Old Lace like every three years. It's 
it's it's it's too much <laughs> it's like it's the, the wigs i and think the it makeup. is so funny that it's like the number one high school play it's like that mm. to kill a mockingbird the latter of yeah. which i was in in high school mm. yeah. i played gene harlow who is scout all grown up but anyway i think that's kind of it there's a lot of great stuff so you know let us know what you're watching as we said email us let us know what you're watching but really excited for some good october watches and with that, Ian, it is time. We got to give the people what they want, what they've all been waiting for. Our takes on Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Desperate to escape his mind-numbing routine, uptown Manhattan office worker Paul Hackett, played by Griffin Dune, ventures downtown for a hookup with a mystery woman, played by Rosanna Arquette. So begins the wildest night of his life, as bizarre occurrences involving underground art punks, a distressed waitress, a crazed Mr. Softy truck driver, and a bagel and cream cheese paperweight pile up with anxiety-inducing relentlessness and thwart his attempts to get home. With this Kafka-esque cult classic, Martin Scorsese, abetted by Michael Ballhaus's kinetic cinematography and scene-stealing supporting turns by Linda Fiorentino, Terry Garr, Catherine O'Hara, and John Hurd, directed a darkly comic take of mistaken identity, turning the desolate night world of 1980s Soho into a bohemian wonderland of surreal menace. Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Criterion website. What I was thinking. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) It balanced it balanced plot with in jokes, with cast, with like um commentary on the artistry. Like that is a synopsis criterion. If only they could do that every time. Yeah, no. I was literally thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, as I'm reading this, this is really good. (laughs) Whoever copywrote that, I'll kiss your feet. That was amazing. Word given to you. Um Mackenzie, mm-hmm. please uh, let me in on your history with Marty, if you want, if, you know, a little brief history with him. But specifically, this is a film we have both seen. So tell us about your background with After Hours. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember when I started watching Marty movies. <laughs> I think it was, it's <laughs> semi-recently. Like, I wish I could I could organize my little Marty list by, like, when I watched it. Um, I Oh, Oh my God, wait, I just remembered why I watched it. This is so nerdy. This is really nerdy. <laughs> and I don't know if Slim listens to this podcast, but uh, it was because of him. I obviously knew who Martin Scorsese was. Um, and right as the time I was joining 70 Millimeter and like seeing this podcast, seeing these people on Twitter and Litterbox, I was seeing Slim. And I think I was listening to the Letterbox show or something like that. And I, or I was listening to 70 Millimeter. 
and hearing him talk about Casino as his favorite movie. And I think I was trying to just like get in with that community and those people. And, and so I, I was like, I'm going to watch this guy's favorite movie and try to become his friend. And so I, I watched Casino and then I cleaned it, tweeted a clip of it and was like, thanks Slim for, you know, recommending this movie. And then like his kindness to me in that moment, I really think was the moment I was like, I want to be a part of this discord in this community. Like this guy seems so nice and kind and like engaging and I want to be around more people like that. And obviously that led to so many wonderful things in my life. So many wonderful people, including the one on this call. So shit, Ian, did Martin Scorsese bring us together? <laughs> like, is in this, a way. That's the reason why ADP exists. Like, I think Marty is the root of it all. Um, so yeah, so what were we going to say? I said you still haven't seen Vanilla Sky. I still have not seen Vanilla Sky. I got to check it out. <laughs> Kev keeps telling me to save it for ADP. So uh-huh. one day. But um, yeah, I think after that, I just started watching some more Marty films. I don't really recall the order, but, you know, I've watched about 10 of his films now, including New York, New York, the much, the deeply messy, deeply flawed, but awesome um, movie musical that Marty did. Um but also Alice doesn't live here anymore. His like surprising turn on a like Serkian woman's picture, his incredible work with black and white cinematography and biopic storytelling with Raging Bull, his iconography of Goodfellas. Like uh, I, I've, his bombasticness of the aviator. Like I've just fallen in love with all of the sides of him. And yeah, about like a year or so ago, I said, I got to check out this after hours movie. Everyone's freaking out about. So yeah, I watched it about a year ago. And on that first watch, I really liked it. I wasn't really sure what I had just watched and it didn't quote unquote, feel like a Martin Scorsese movie to me, but yeah, I thought it was really, really great. Ian, I'm talking too long. What is your history? with Marty and After Hours. Oh, you know, with Marty, uh I think the furthest movie that I go back with him would be Hugo. Oh, wow. Um I read Hugo as a child and I remember seeing it in the theaters and liking it just fine. But once I started getting way back into cinema around the time of the pandemic beginning, as I have you know, described on this podcast and in other forums on the internet, I, uh, you know, I was like, I need to tackle some of the greats. So I started tackling films by Robert Altman, Pedro Moldovar, Paul Thomas Anderson, my baby. <laughs> um, and also, of course, Martin Scorsese. And to tell you the truth, when it first started out, not the biggest fan. I hmm. knew that about you. Mm-hmm. I started with the most famous ones. Goodfellas, which I recently tried to give a second go and I DNF'd it. Didn't even put it as a log on Letterboxd because I didn't even get like 35 minutes in. I did I'm not know so that. sorry to everybody. <laughs> um, you know, pitchforks, I, I can hear them clanging together and the torch is being lit right now. I'm uh, This them. is just as bad as when I logged Kill Bill. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but aside from that, I also watched um, Shutter Island, which I rewatched recently as well. I've been rewatching a lot of his movies. I'm getting ready for that Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm Ooh, excited. Yes. But my, 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 my opinions don't really evolve with the films I've noticed. Um, he's really hit or miss for me. And my favorite film by him, which I think I've talked about on this podcast, is one that a lot of people would consider mid or lower tier and that's Silence, which is another film, like you say, After Hours doesn't feel like a Scorsese film. A lot of people, myself included, would say that Silence doesn't really feel like a Scorsese film, just aside from the technical craft and formalism on display in that film. It's just 
It's very different, even though it's tackling, you know, doubt and, you know, spirituality and Catholicism, like a lot of his films do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that movie to be very striking, very beautiful and very emotionally engaging. Um, most of the time, the themes of machismo and the themes of uh, Catholic guilt are not things that I identify with and <laughs> I'm just not interested in them. Um so it's really no surprise actually then that when I first saw After Hours, I was really blown away by it and I found it to be a nice, refreshing change of pace mm-hmm. in the lieu of Martin Scorsese's filmmaking. Still a mastery of technical craft is on display and obviously at work with this film. The camera is so expressive and I'm excited to talk about it. And this thing just looks phenomenal, especially on the 4K restoration, which I popped in earlier oh. this to earlier today. Um but yeah, no, I mean, I watched this movie originally because Mitchell Bupre, whom we have talked about numerous times on this podcast, the co-host of the Letterboxd show, um, they of Letterboxd fame, um, <laughs> it's their favorite movie of all time. And I was like, well, I got to check this out. I respect them. Yeah. I got I to I see what the, their favorite movie is. That's got to be a great movie. Um, yeah. And so the first time I liked it a lot. I feel like my opinions and my uh, my views of this movie has evolved in more ways than one. So I'm excited to get into it. God, I, I literally don't know where to start. I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, <laughs> they're all so kooky. My notes are kooky. You want to know something, something kooky? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, something wild, maybe. Something wild. You want something wild? Um, I literally, as this movie was beginning and I hadn't watched it in a while. I didn't remember all of the granular details of this film. I was like, what if like, this is Martin Scorsese's blue velvet. They're like two sides of the same coin because I was like, this movie feels like the wizard of Oz and blue velvet is David Lynch's wizard of Oz to me in terms of a protagonist fall, you know, wishes for something more over the rainbow falls into the horrors of the underbelly of the world we thought we knew only to feel safety and happiness within that return to the thing you, you always had, you know? Uh, And so, and then when they mentioned the Wizard of Oz later, I was like, Oh my God, I'm a fucking genius. Um, So yeah, I think it's wild that both of these movies came out in 1985. And I think they'd be a a wonderful double feature together uh, in terms of like guy goes through a really shitty night. Um, And yeah, I just, I, I thought it was so interesting. I I still, I think I'm left with this feeling of I don't exactly know what I watched because its tone is so hard to pin down. Um, but I was listening to uh, an old commentary from Scorsese depicting it as like a guy going into the underworld and like Chiron takes him across the river in the taxi and like he's fighting not to stay in the underworld and be dead or something like I think it was interesting hearing Scorsese's view of what this is. I, I'm I'm just curious. I don't know. I'm just trying to open up a general conversation about how you feel about the story and the tone of the movie, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I have talked about being a fan of Kafka and Kafka-esque work on this podcast before. One of my most pretentious uh, viewpoints and just kind of like interests. Um, Frankie once recently quipped that uh, Ian is the only person that will uh, say something is Kafka-esque unironically. Um, (laughs) So I genuinely enjoy that type of work because it just kind of exposes just kind of the absurdity of everyday life and also the corruption of bureaucracy and the corruption of um, systems and how they just fall so easily. 
Um, I don't think that's necessarily what After Hours is after, but I do like that. I had not heard that Marty had said like this descent somewhat into hell. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like that because I do think like this whole movie is just madness. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, it's to a, to a comical degree, obviously. The moment that really gets me specifically in this film when it just comes to the madness of it all is the scene when um paul goes into the bathroom at the bar uh yes and it just it just overflows and it's like what guy cannot catch a break it's like the most mundane of thing to anybody else that would be the worst thing to happen during your day Mm, and this is just one other thing being thrown onto the pile of bad things that's happening to paul but yeah, no, I mean, I I also have a have a struggle with like, what exactly did I just watch? What's the point of it all? <laughs> um, to a certain degree, and I think that's somewhat of the charm of this movie is like it's it's a li- a little bit of it's n- it's a little bit in the nihilism almost. It's like mm-hmm. it all kind of is fucked because at the end of the day, Paul's just going to end up right back where he started, uh, literally. So, yeah, I mean, all that to say, like, I'm almost I'm almost exactly on the same page with you, Mackenzie. <laughs> I um, you know, what's interesting is a thought I just had right now that like famously I was reading a lot about how Scorsese didn't know how it was going to end for like a really long time. Like they went through like numerous different endings because he was like i just literally don't know how to end this movie and i think that's interesting because i do think that shows but also it enhances the story because he doesn't know what's how it's going to end you know what i mean like i think that's interesting because it's almost like a meta feeling you have that to me i'm like i think i can tell the film doesn't really know where it's going but like that's part of it right that's part of kind of putting you in the experience of of him and Another trivia I thought was really interesting was Michael Powell, who we've discussed on the show with the Red Shoes, obviously the husband of Thelma Schoonmaker, Marty's longtime forever editor, who is one of the most brilliant editors, I think, working or have ever worked. Um, her, He was her husband and he was around and he was the one who basically was like, this is how it has to end. He has to end up back where he started. Like, And they didn't even know if they were going to commit to that and test screeners didn't like that he died at the end. And so I think it's interesting that Michael Powell, it's like that that blending of the generations of cinema, right? I think that's like, I think Marty and Michael's relationship are one of the greatest like old Hollywood to new Hollywood friendships. And I love that this yeah. film is the blend of that. Like Marty's yeah. vision with this, like this sticking the landing of Michael Powell's influence and, and Thelma's influence. Yeah, no, that that is very poetic and operatic of Powell as he is uh, as he is apt to be. Um, I did not know that. Uh, look at you! I'm dropping these the fun research. facts, baby. Yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, w- one of my major takeaways from this thing is it's one of the, and it's not just because of the 4K restoration, Mackenzie, but this thing looks phenomenal. It's one of the most interesting films I think he ever made, mm. and I am curious. I I don't know. I I sadly did not. Uh, come as prepared as you did oh, no obviously worries. but i wonder if he i just don't know that much about marty i wonder if michael Belhas was a regular of his i doubt it because i know this film was produced by griffin dune and this was like a four hire job which is honestly just amazing 
but I love the cinematography in this movie. It looks so good. It's like exactly what I want out of like a neon caked 80s movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It looks gorgeous and strange. I love the way you talked about the personality of the camera because the camera, mm. it's I, one of the best movies, I think, where the camera is so noticeably incredible in its point of view, if that makes sense. Like you really feel like you are in his point of view like when we're looking at him in the mirror he looks over the camera pans to reveal the shark eating the dick and we we are like i just like that we discover things at the same time he does you know what i mean like i like that it's almost always keeping us in his point of view which i think helps kind of yeah i don't know like the camera you're right it's so electric because the camera is such an extension of the main character in a way that is so it feels so alive i love the way you put that up top well you know to your point, Mackenzie, yes, like uh, Bellhouse's camera is just so, I would say kinetic. It's one of my favorite words, but I'm going to swap it out for fernetic. Like it's <laughs> just crazy. I love the way that it like swoops with Griffin's character, um, Paul. Like sometimes like when he's leaving the apartment um, after Marcy has died or when he and Marcy are going to the diner for the first time that evening, it's like a low angle shot and it's like tracking them like, a little bit far away but it's moving pretty quickly it just kind of imbues the film with the anxiety that it obviously wants to create um but another thing that i like love and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about with like the way that this movie was supposed to end there's like this bravura sequence as the credits start where the camera just like swings around his office to classical music mm-hmm. and it's just it's just like this like final cherry on top of the cake i think that's like exactly what you're saying you know the camera is situating in the viewpoint of this guy um and to me at the end that's just like his head is just spinning he's like fuck i'm gonna do this forever but did you notice he's gone when the camera comes back around yeah. what does that mean mm-hmm. like yeah, 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 yeah. i think All it's, so, it's such an interesting because you could like blink and you miss that blink in your mm-hmm. interview and you miss that he's not in his chair anymore yeah that's why i think it's from his perspective like this the camera movement's like he's gone because we are like in him now man that's really good that's really (laughs) fucking good uh wow marty what can't you fucking do that's p-a-t-z-a-k need a pencil no on mulberry street thank you five eight one nine six two That was funny. That was funny. Potsick, please. P-A-T-Z-A-K on Mulberry Street, Manhattan. Thank you. Five, eight, six, two. Don't. Nine, Don't. three, eight, zero. Ow. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> now I have forgotten the number. What is wrong with you? Are you all right? I have had a terrible, terrible night. Do you understand? I'm just trying to entertain you. I don't want any entertainment. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm under. 
Oh, God. I, I'm unable to get home tonight, you know? I can't get home. And I'm trying desperately to find a place where I can stay tonight. Just sleep. All I want to do is sleep. Uh, there is a place on Spring Street. I could stay there, but I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, why not? Why not what? Why aren't you there? There's a place on Spring Street. Go. Because a bartender who lives there, his girlfriend, killed herself tonight. And I think it's because of me. I see. That's out, then. That's right, that's out. That is out. That is not a possibility. So if you just let me make this phone call, you'd be doing me such a favor. You really would. Please. I can wait. Can I talk? I say. Oh. No, please. No, please go Can ahead. we talk about how many gay people are in this movie? <laughs> oh, my gosh. If you weren't going to bring it up, I was. that was literally about what I was going to bring this up. This is the Marty um, movie for the gays, I think. It is. My favorite review of this film is your original one. Would you do us the honor of reading it? <laughs> Let me pull it up. I didn't have it. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I have to look up my reviews. Ah! I wrote kind of the ultimate tag yourself movie. I'm the letter. Da- <laughs> I'm the leather daddy on the left in the bar that says, Oh no. In the softest, <laughs> sweetest voice on earth after hearing bad news. I'm the uh, tenant who with his partner is uh, tracing Griffin down the stairs. Like, Hey, get that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like at, by the end, I had a note that just said Catherine O'Hara and an army of gays. <laughs> it's just like a building that is exclusively filled with gay men and then Catherine yeah. O'Hara in a truck just trying to kill someone. Like yep. them, the leather daddies, that poor guy that was just trying to cruise at like 5 a.m. And mm-hmm. like was just trying to cruise for the first time. And then he gets this crazy straight guy in his apartment. Like there's so many gay people in this and it feels true to that area of new york similar to how we talked about something wild that real new york feel that 80s movies have this feels true that like a lot of queer people would exist in the same community area we have that in chicago with boys town and andersonville those are gayborhoods like we flock to each other so like i kind of love it it makes it feel more real more lived in the the community and the neighborhood have a personality yeah no absolutely like there's so much personality in this film and the new york of this film uh feels incredibly just imbued with that personality i do love the supplement on the criterion release where it's just fran uh lebowitz and marty talking back and forth and that's pretty much what they're talking about is like how he bottled new york specifically that area of new york at that specific time um this is one of the reasons I love 80s films is because they just felt so uniquely good at bottling their specific um, time and place. Like the, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, like ennui is not the right word, but like you kind of can understand like exactly what I'm trying to get at. Like just these specific nuance, these specific nuances and these just cultural moments and things that were happening. Um, just getting to see like, I just I I love that I love that scene in the bar with the leather daddies and just I like they're spe- just that's so specific like fondling each other's nipples and he's yeah. just drinking and I hanging out it. like not even yeah. he doesn't give a shit no yeah nobody gives a fuck no it's one just gives like, a fuck and that's right. kind of what makes it so good like yeah I love this Marty put more gay people in your movies yeah and then the club Berlin sequences are super fascinating there's a gay bar um, in Chicago called Berlin. It's just a weird movie also and like it's so weird. I mean, yeah, I mean it's, it kind of goes without saying that after hours is somewhat weird. Um 
but yeah, no, I mean, transitioning into that, then we should talk maybe about Catherine O'Hara and like the women in this movie. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting performances by women. Um, Some of the most interesting, I think of Marty's career. I I don't want to diminish like any of the like amazing Italian women who are in his (laughs) mob movies and just like, not to say that Marty's career is not littered with like amazing female performances. I mean, lest we forget Alice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I find this to be incredibly fascinating that like Paul is being terrorized by women. Yes. All night. I, I am a little uh, raised eyebrow about what that says. Um, but um, yeah, it's just one quote. I'm doing air quotes. Crazy a woman after another mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i'm interested in what you think of that but i am also interested to talk about these women and their performances because they're all really great yeah i also had that thought by the time we mm-hmm. were getting to the third woman that was fucking him over mm-hmm. i was like huh <laughs> yeah huh. Is, but, but when you think yeah. about it right like um i know you're gonna i know get ready for the eye roll of the century i'm about to see through this riverside call um <laughs> I think of Bo is Afraid, which also helmed itself as Kafka. <laughs> help myself. As Kafka esque. And it's all about like the inability to nut, <laughs> I guess, and how that affects <laughs> yeah. your relationship with women. So maybe he's terrorized yeah. by all these women because he's so painfully horny that, like, I mean, that's an yes. incel, yeah. right? Like, they're so painfully horny and then they take their rage out on women because of it. So maybe that's what it is. But yeah, I did. They, maybe if we're thinking about it as an underworld allegory, maybe they're succubi. I, I don't know. That maybe doesn't make yeah. it any better. But um, I did also have that thought like halfway through the movie. <laughs> yeah, I had it like, honestly, with the Rosanna Arquette character with Marcy, because like, I, not to like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about like a, what I think a lot of people would say is a pale imitation, but I don't agree. But, you know, you recommended to me rather recently, Desperately Seeking Susan, in which yes. uh, it's got very similar vibes. It's a, you know, like one crazy day slash night uh, movie. And Arquette is the lead in that. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely giving after hours. I mean, obviously the connection is right there. But um I don't know. I just, I love her. She's my favorite part of this movie Um, with like the secondary favorite thing being like just the women performances in this film. I think Catherine O'Hare is amazing. I think um, Julie, Julie Gar. What? Terry Gar. Julie Gar. Terry Gar. I think Terry Gar is amazing. I think she plays Julie. Julie. Um, Yeah. I think she's phenomenal. I love, I think she's so funny um i just love when she's like you know what you said you would come back and you did that mm. deserves to be commended well g- <laughs> and she gives him the guess who she's the female lead in i don't know young frankenstein you gotta watch it this oh, year oh shit all right she's, all she's right. so funny in that she's the she's I'm a putting it on the spooktober the, list uh, the european buxom blonde as mel brooks likes to write in that movie <laughs> I'll put it on, it's on the Spooktober list. Love it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love Rosanna Arquette in this movie. And I'm like, kind of like, it is one of those things where it's like, leave them wanting more. Cause I am like super sad when she dies mm-hmm. and not to kind of continually harp on my, like my eyebrow raise, but like that, I'm sure it serves a story and I'm sure somebody can make an argument, but that leering scene where he like takes her sheet off, yeah. I find very gross in it. Like it, I had, I had no recollection of it. And when it happened, I was like, Ooh, yeah, same. I forgot. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
I blocked it out, um, I suppose. Yeah, but she's I I think Rosanna Arquette's my favorite performance in this movie. Um, not to even mention how I feel about Catherine O'Hara yet, but oh, yeah, well, I just thought yeah. I just thought it'd be fun to talk about the ladies and their, their performances. No, please. I mean, I don't know how large our lesbian listenership is. Might might <laughs> just be me. I don't know. But for, for the audience of me, uh, Rosanna Arquette is a lesbian icon and uh, because she was in the L word and she dated Shane. She yes. was a toxic mommy character uh, for Shane. And uh, she's iconic. Love Rosanna Arquette. I mean, the Arquette family in general. Uh, I love Alexis, yeah. you know, I adore, uh, and same with Patricia, like I, and, and even David and d- being weird and <laughs> doing his thing. I, I love, I love the Arquette fa- acting family just in general. Uh, and yeah, she's great. And it makes, yeah, it makes me so sad that she dies. And I think it's interesting how, how much mystery the film allows with her. Cause like we kind of learn a bit about the husband. We kind of know there's some burns somewhere and then there's this tattoo and like like we just get these bits of this person and we leave the film not knowing really anything about her much like him which what an amazing mystery that you get to just kind of ruminate on i think it's so cool and um yeah i agree i love terry gar i love her in young frankenstein she's very funny here she used to play a lot of strange turns uh linda fiorentino is so mm. hot in this movie mm. I, like mm-hmm. if i walked in and that woman was like uh immediately like take your shirt off and do my job for me and then was like, <laughs> like yes, i'd mommy. be like um yeah and then it was just like by the <laughs> way can you give me a massage i'll take my shirt off now and i don't even know this woman's name i would pass out okay yeah she is so hot i did not know this was linda fiorentino because we just watched men in black on uh on adp oh, and i was like this is the same person like what the fuck oh. I was just going to say is like the first thing I ever saw her in is, you know, I grew up while the men in black films were coming up and I was really into them. I watched men in black too obsessively, even though now I realize that's a less than perfect movie. <laughs> and like the disconnect I had when I was like, cause I didn't realize it was Linda, Linda Farentino until this watch. Me? And I was like, yeah. Wait, what? Wait, what? And I'm just like, yeah. And then Mackenzie, imagine you give Linda Farentino a, a back massage. You leave. She wakes up. And it's just like, hey, what's up? I'm naked now. Oh, my what's God. Up? And the way he looks at her when she walks off is <laughs> me fuck as fuck. Me as fuck right there. <sighs> but, yeah, no, she's actually, like, like really great. I mean, she doesn't, ha- she doesn't have any material to work with in the second Men in Black. But, like, I really like her just kind of just, like, yeah, what about it? Like, demeanor, her just, like, very nonchalance. Like, it's not hard. Dip the paper mache in it and put it on. Fucking idiot. Um, I wish we had more with her in the second part half yeah. of the film. I wish we saw her more. That's the thing. And, you know, I feel like we've already started that pattern, but it's the way I feel about basically every, uh, every like side woman in this film is like, I wish we had like, I would watch a whole movie about the Arquette character about Marcy. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in what's going on there. But you you make you make the point like these bits of mystery are fun. It's probably better that way. Yeah. It does. It kind of like, lol. You feel as pent up as he does because you you know you can't quite understand everything and they're withholding so much from you. I think that is part of the power of After Hours is how they like you know keep things from you. There's no really better way to say it. I mean the tattoo thing is so weird and ominous. I but again. You know, Mackenzie, the way that they keep things from you gets back to an earlier point we were both making is like, what? 
what? what? What's wait, going on? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, uh, like we said, uh, Terry Gar, so funny. And the last, the last one I think I really want to mention and, you know, spend just couple seconds on at least is Catherine o'hara i've never seen her do anything like this like she of schitt's creek she of uh sctv like i love that he like i love that marty loved that stuff enough or like like at least maybe griffin dune liked that stuff but like i love that they were pulling from like comedy obviously because i didn't know that about terry gar but like these are like comedy people who are like populating these roles in this like really surrealist dark comedy still a comedy but like very different. I mean, I love Catherine O'Hara. I mean, she's, you know, I feel like she's a staple in a lot of like eighties films, you know, Beetlejuice. She's amazing. And, um, she's in Dick Tracy also, which is weird, but obviously I love her from all the Christopher guest films. Um, I cannot, like, I cannot decide between her waiting for Guffman character or her, um, best in show character. They're both so fucking funny. Uh, best in show is particularly hilarious. And she's also kind of wonderful and for your consideration in like a really heartbreaking and empathetic and sweet way. Uh, so I, I love her. She's one of the funniest people in the world. Moira Rose, Schitt's Creek. You know, I, I just think she's just genuinely yes. one of the funniest people alive. Uh, and yeah, she's doing a lot of strange and fun stuff and she gets so violent and crazy by the end. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's her and her army of gays, you know? <laughs> yeah she's got a lot of bits in this Tom. Like the phone thing oh, yes the phone yeah. thing the phone thing five six seven eight <laughs> um but yeah no i mean unsure what else to talk about what else do you have written in your notes i mean so much of it is like not to coin a phrase popcorn noty stuff because it's like like I was thinking about how hilarious it is to me to see like the origins of like people working on computers. You know what I mean? Like the OG old as fuck computers, just like watching people slowly learn how to just type a few words. Like it's, it's so funny because every movie we watch now is so like people just are proficient in computers because that's human beings right now uh it also made me think about how when he arrives in the taxi the crazy taxi drive which is literally just every uber driver now like every time i get in an uber it's like that and it's it's like who who taught you how to drive um i was (laughs) thinking like as he was getting out of the taxi i was like man this is a movie that could not exist in the age of the cell phone like that's maybe another reason why it feels so specific and interesting and almost alien, I think, to people now. Because I think it has, yeah. I think that's why I'm sort of like confused by it because it's like it has an alien quality to it. And I think part of it is the kind of disjointed and manic character work that's happening. Everything is so strange. Like sometimes, like especially with Catherine O'Hara and Griffin Dunn, it's like their characters aren't even having the same conversation. They're just saying opposite weird things to each other. Like, it can get so confusing. I've literally just forgotten what I'm talking about. That's how confusing it can get. Like it. Yeah. Fuck, I mean, what was I saying? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a uh, disjointed by design, like story. It's, you know, I think it is supposed to be confusing. And that's like, that's like the Kafka thing. It's like, you know, it's like, it is disarming you in a way in order to expose the absurdities of everyday life. And also just like the way that we live our lives, the systems, dude. I remember what I was saying about no cell phones, technology. I think because of it's just like manic cr- craziness, like it just, 
it, it, it just such a it's such a specific tone it's so alien because it's like nowadays it's just like you just would pick up your phone and you would call somebody and and you would map yourself home and you'd probably just walk home like like you know what i mean like it's just it's wild like it's just so specific you're right it bottles it like like you said and i i i, I had honestly not even given thought to that because like i i usually take films as they are i like just set myself in that time and place also like uh, I'm I'm I like fine with period pieces and I'm also like it's you know if no cell phones exist that's fine but like thinking about it that way where it's like oh like it, cell phones weren't even a thing in the during the making of the film like the Paul's having a shitty night he he has to beg a stranger on the street for the use of their telephone like their landline mm-hmm. like I'm thinking about it in a little bit of a different way now because that is crazy to think about and just putting yourself in a situation where you're cut off and like he's broke because he's broke. He doesn't have Apple pay. Yeah. Yeah. Or credit cards, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah. Maybe it's, it's probably at a time when like you might have credit cards, but you can only use them at Macy's and Nordstrom's like can't use them at the bar. It's Like it's something wild. Like my worst nightmare being somewhere that doesn't take cards is my worst nightmare. Cheech and Chong, another wild cameo uh i do love them in it they are incredibly fun oh and speaking of cameo scorsese did you catch him i do he's the spotlight operator at club berlin yes i love it i love it um and then yeah i just kind of was talking about how like i would have just started walking north like i would have not been if i if this is me i simply would not have been here anymore i would have just walked home um and then yeah i just what is oh i i like his i'll probably get blamed for that when he sees a woman murder her lover across the street (laughs) i do i think that is the i think that's the funniest moment like the best single joke in the movie absolutely yeah and then the last two notes i have written are i love you know the sequence where he says i just want to live i think that's a really beautiful sequence it feels like the heart of the movie um the emotional climax of the film for me him dancing with her and talking about how he wants to live in that Scorsese commentary from 04, I loved how he said it's a movie almost about that fear that you're going to die and no one will know who you were. And I think that's so interesting because he also talked about how he made this at a point in his life where like he was having a lot of box office failures and he wasn't sure the kind of stories he wanted to tell. And he was turning 40 and he was dealing with a lot of stuff. And so I think it's interesting, this idea that this film is secretly about like legacy and the anxiety of death and the fear of death uh, in a way that is interesting relates to all that jazz as we talked about like you know it's just it's interesting that that might be this might be scorsese's version of that which i think is kind of fascinating yeah no that's that's really interesting to think about it's yeah i think it shows to me it shows that he's thinking about that in that certain way it could it just goes further to show how much in a way not to be a little bit negative like this was a job for hire because it feels like some self-inserting into the film which is obviously his like that's like his prerogative and i love when you have to do that especially if you're coming to a project you didn't really have any creative conception Mm -hmm. involvement with like him inserting himself but it is interesting to see like i feel like it's a story that somebody wrote with this idea to just be like kind of a you know balls to the wall weird somewhat kafka 
light satire maybe and then scorsese inserts himself in that way it's interesting to think about for sure yeah absolutely Check it out. Check it out, huh? oh man this is junk what are you talking about junk man this is antiques man this is old it's plastic hey let's call it a night man we got enough stuff already Cabron! <laughs> it's my sculpture hey man be careful with it huh okay. all right hey man is it worth taking this thing what, are you crazy, man? This is art. Well, art sure is ugly, man. Hey, that's how much you know, man, you know? The uglier the art, the more it's worth. Well, this must be worth a fortune, man. That's right. It's about that famous guy, Siegel. Yeah? Yeah, you seen him? He's on the Carson show, man. He plays banjo all the time. Yeah, I never watch Carson. Yeah. Well, that's how much you know about art. Ah, stay home. I know, man. I'd take a stereo any day. Yeah, what do you know, man? A stereo's a stereo. Art is forever. And now it's time for Connections, Mackenzie. Let's talk a little bit about how this relates to our last covered film, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, and why we chose After Hours as its pairing as our double feature. I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Guy has a bad day. I, I think it's actually interesting. I was sort of thinking um, something wild is like the light sided to after hours is dark sided yeah. almost in terms of how it kind of goes for our character. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the reason why I chose it and the main connections I see between the two of them is, yeah, it's this yuppie. It's that's set in a really specific type of New York and, you know, surrounding area of New York. It's really set in a very specific time and place in a way that is brilliantly done, I think, by both directors to really um, anchor them to these these specific time periods and and locations. And those locations have personality and life. And like the world feels very lived in in both of these these settings. Uh, and obviously the, the main characters are these yuppies who work in offices, who are stuck in life and meet a woman. And in After Hours, this case, new, numerous women that ex- take out a new side of him. And again, I think it goes better for our character in something wild than it does yeah. for after hours. But I think that was, that's what makes them an interesting pairing to see two takes on a similar thematic structure. Yeah. I mean, last double feature we did was all about even clouds of Sils Maria, which is like, they're very on the face. Like there's inspiration of all about Eve in clouds of Sils Maria. And that's like great and everything. And we've done a couple like that before, but I feel like this is just our most fun double feature because like, they're first of all they're two very fun movies but they're tackling subject matter that's very similar like you said Mm -hmm. they're both like one crazy day slash night movies like everything happens in the course of basically 24 hours if not much less in the case of after hours um and i know something wild does eventually get to you know a couple days but the bulk of that story takes place in just like 24 hours um and so yeah no like i love i love the connection there for that reason um yeah something wild is definitely much more of a happier ending and the ending to after hours is dark as fuck like (laughs) fucking (laughs) depressing if you ask me um but yeah no just the 80s of it all too that's like my favorite part about this double feature and i think the connection that i am like most intrigued by is just like as i've been saying in this conversation and our last one like 80s films are just so interesting from the way that they tackled that specific time and place there's such a vibe and an aesthetic and a style to the eighties that I'm very enamored with. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I always have been. Um, 
but yeah, no, I think you did a great job. And I think like, I hope people watched along with us because this was like such a good double bill. Yeah, really. They go really, really well together. Uh, and Ian, with that, do you want to let me know what your final thoughts and rating is for After Hours? I would love to. Um, yeah, no, I I have I always have a really interesting time with this film. Um, I say that this only being the second time I've watched it. And I think it only being the second time I've ever watched it, I've realized something is like kind of dread putting this movie on because it's so anxiety inducing. <laughs> um, yes. It's known for that, I think. I think people recognize that this film is like anxiety distilled in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had a really kind of nerve wracking time watching it for the second time. And I was like, oh, maybe this is why I haven't revisited it so much. Mm. Um, and it's mostly because as I grow and I age, my neuroses get more um, <laughs> s- like concrete within my personality and also more... Um, their uh, roots uh, grow deeper and deeper and deeper into my soul. And I'm just mm. I'm so scared of so many things, Mackenzie. And this <laughs> movie is just like, yeah, you have absolutely a million reasons to be scared of that thing you're scared of. It's a completely rational fear. You should be scared of it. Keep being scared of it. Um, so, yeah, that's like my final big thought about this movie is like, ah. Um, and then aside from that, this few round, I kind of took issue with the portrayal of women and like mm. the way that they're viewed um and also just was not nearly as engrossed as i was the first time and so sorry to end my part of this conversation on somewhat of a downer but it's going to be the first time on the connection that i downrate a film from five stars to four stars mm. <laughs> still very good it's one of my favorite uh, marty's if honestly i hadn't been going on this written scorsese journey and having seen the King of Comedy recently and seeing Silence, I think it might still be five stars number one. But uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Marty. Um, I still love it. Still great. But it's going to be a four from me. Mackenzie, what about you? Yes, I had mine rated a four for my first watch. And I left this viewing still enjoying it a lot and I left feeling like I was also at a four star still like it didn't quite improve for me but like because like it still left me yeah I was also noticing the women a little bit more and then I was like I, I leave with such a confused feeling I think I still need to figure it out a bit more before I can put it at five stars and then as we were discussing I felt like I was talking myself up and I was like oh shit if, if Ian if Ian five bangs am I just gonna feel the spirit and five bang right after uh and then I was like wait come back down to earth I think we were right. So I think I'm going to stay at four. Big Fat Heart, which is basically an honorary four and a half for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's a movie I want to watch high, which I know sounds crazy, but I want to try <laughs> oh, it. Oh, no. Um, but I want to watch it a couple more times, and I want to let some of it stick a bit more in my brain and formulate a bit more before maybe I make it into an all-timer, because it just doesn't resonate as an all-timer for me yet. But again, yeah, still, a Marty I absolutely love. Well, that is another double bill in the books. And what a fun one it was. We did our first Marty, I think. That was our first Marty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Killers of the Fire Moon coming out soon. Maybe we'll have to do another one uh, after it to celebrate. But who can say? Because the rest of our slate is secret. Except 
for what Mackenzie is about to reveal in just a moment. But before we get to that, if people want to write in about our thoughts on After Hours, their thoughts on After Hours, how they enjoyed the double bill of something wild and After Hours, or also maybe they want to talk about what you're about to tell everybody we are watching Mackenzie, they can write us or send us their voicemails 90 seconds or under to the criterion connection at gmail.com that is the criterion connection at gmail.com nothing today to play or read mackenzie so please the anticipation is growing do enlighten us what is our next double feature going to start off with well um we you as we said we pivoted a little bit to to adjust and and chill out a little bit more and because of that i think it ended up inadvertently opening up an extra slot uh for a double feature and we were like well, let's slate something new in what do we want to watch and a movie that i recently picked up a physical copy of famously uh i been wanting to watch it i've been wanting you to watch it it's one of those films that has quickly become one of my favorite films of all time on just the one watch i need to rewatch this movie my review before I share the letterbox synopsis, which is, I will say, not a great synopsis on letterbox. It's not very well written by the last sentence. But my review is a quote from the film that I will not spoil. But after I quote that quote, I say, has me on the floor. I'm in the fetal position. I'm laying in a puddle of my own tears. Nobody look at me ever again. The tagline is... They were meant to be, but exactly what they were meant to be is not quite clear. The young Harold lives in his own world of suicide attempts and funeral visits to avoid the misery of his current family and home environment. Harold meets an 80-year-old woman named Maud who also lives in her own world, yet in one in which she is having the time of her life. When the This is the sentence that's very silly and bad. When the two opposites meet, they realize that their differences don't matter and they become best friends and love each other. 1971's Harold and Maude, directed by Hal Ashby. Ooh, it's been coming for a while. It's been. Yes. I am so ready to rewatch. I'm so ready to see what you think. I'm Again, very... no pressure at all to love it. <laughs> I want you to be honest with me genuinely. Yes, I'm very, very, very excited. From what I can gather, it looks promising. I'm getting some, you know, 70s Altman vibes. It's got Bud Court in it. Um, and it looks, it looks, it looks like it could be up my alley, but only time will tell when it finally comes to the show next week. It has some, to me, Wes Anderson-y vibes. I, I could see this being an inspiration for Wes. People always say Hal Ashby, big for our boy. Now, I've never heard him say that, but other people are always saying Hal Ashby's a big one for him. You'll see it, I think. Well, I'm very excited, Mackenzie. Do you have anything else for the fine folks out there? Nothing from me. Well, then, until then. See you next time on the Criterion Connection. Bye.